We're already halfway through our study in the book of Romans. And remember, the book of Romans, its theme is God's righteousness. Now, before we go to our message, let's go back and review what we've covered so far. After Paul introduced the gospel, he presented the bad news of our condemnation. We as humankind have sinned against God, and therefore we are condemned because of sin, and we are condemned to God's wrath and judgment. Then Paul shared the good news of salvation. Despite being sinful, God made a way for us to be made right with him. And this is the good news that we, as believers, we receive justification by faith. And after that, Paul then discussed the believer's sanctification and our glorious ending. And now we move to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul will now focus on the role of Israel and her connection with God's righteousness. Now, many say that chapter 8 could have been immediately followed by chapter 12. And they say that the book of Romans would still make sense kung wala yung chapters 9, 10, and 11. And why do they say that? They say that because chapters 9, 10, and 11 talk about Israel. And many of these passages in, in this section are completely uh, complex and difficult to understand. And so when you read, it seemed that Paul went um, off topic when he talked about this chapter. But as we study this section, we'll see that Paul is not introducing a new topic. Instead, this subject is related and logically connected to the first eight chapters, as we'll see in a while. As mentioned, chapters 9 to 11 are all about Israel. And think of it as Israel's trilogy. Israel's trilogy. It's past, present, and future. And here's the overview of these three chapters. Let me explain this a bit. Chapter 9 focuses on God's sovereignty. Out of his mercy and grace, God selected Israel for his purpose and glory. Chapter 10 highlights then man's responsibility and particularly the example of Israel. It highlights Israel's choice and the consequences of her choice and the exercise of her free will. And chapter 11 focuses on God's faithfulness despite Israel's unbelief. The point is God will fulfill his plan for his people in the future. And we will learn more about these things as we move along. But I just want to highlight in this, it's, it's these three chapters. It's basically focusing on God's mercy and grace. Chapter 9 focuses on God's mercy and grace. Chapter 10 also focuses on God's mercy and grace despite Israel's unbelief. And chapter 11, God is, is, the focus is on God's mercy and grace. No wonder in chapter 12 it says, in view of God's mercy. So that's the connecting theme or, or keyword in, in these passages. But we will learn more about these things as we move along. Now, how is Romans chapter 9 connected with chapter 8? Bakit nga ba sinama ni Paul itong chapters 9, 10, and 11 dito sa Romans? You see, back in chapter 8, Paul explains that God guarantees the fulfillment of the believer's salvation. Let's read chapter 8, verse 30. Paul says, And those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. This is what the theologians call the golden chain of salvation. It means that God promises to bring salvation into completion from his predestination to his call and for us being justified, being sanctified, and eventually towards glorification. But that leads us to another question. Someone might say, hold on, Paul, wait lang. 
Sabi mo, God go, when God calls someone, He would fulfill it up to the end. When You said when God calls someone, He would ensure their glorious ending. But what about the Jews? Didn't God call them? What happened to God's word? What happened to God's call? How come most of the Jews rejected Christ? And does that mean that God failed at His word? What happened to God's covenant to His original chosen people? These are the questions that Paul will address in this section. Now, you may ask, why is this issue important for us? We're not Jews, we're Gentiles, and we are already in Christ. But you see, this is essential. Why? Because what happens to Israel could also happen to us. You see, if God did not keep his promise to Israel, which is his original chosen people, then how can we be sure that God will keep his promise to us? If God cannot save his chosen nation, Israel, how can we as Christians know that God will save us? So in other words, the stakes are also high for us. And more importantly, the stakes are higher for God because what is at stake is God's righteousness. The question is, if God is truly righteous and if God is truly faithful, then will he fulfill his covenant promise to his people? That's what is at stake. And that is what we will learn today. So are you ready? Let's begin. Our topic for today is God's sovereign choice in Romans chapter 9. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me as we read through these verses. Now, Paul will address these four questions. Has God's word failed? Is God unjust? Why does God still blame us? And what's the explanation for Israel's unbelief? Now, before we continue, let me give you the summary of our lesson for today. And this is very important. I hope that you would take time to memorize and take it into heart. Here's our summary. God is the righteous and faithful God who fulfills his covenant promise. He is the sovereign and merciful God who chooses undeserving people for his purpose and ultimately for his glory. God is the righteous and faithful God who fulfills his covenant promise. And he is also the sovereign and merciful God who chooses undeserving people for his purpose and ultimately for his glory. Now, before Paul answered the four questions, he begins this section by expressing his grief over his people of Israel. Verses 1 to 5, Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul was in great anguish. It says he has great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Hindi tumitigil ang kanyang kalungkutan. Paul was in great anguish over his fellow Israelites. Why? Because at this point in history, the majority of the people of Israel were still cut off from Christ. They were still cut off from Christ because they rejected Christ and they rejected the gospel. And therefore, they remain unsaved. And Paul repeated this heart's desire for the salvation of Israel in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israelites is that they may be saved. You see, Paul's desire to see his fellow Israelites saved was so great that he said this in verse 3. I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. 
those of my own race, the people of Israel, Paul said, Lord, kahit yung salvation ko mawala, basta mailigtas lang ang mga ang kasama ko mga Israelites. Lord, I would willingly take your curse upon me and the punishment that you're supposed to give to Israel. I'm willing to take all of those things, but at least they could be saved if that were possible. That is what Paul is saying. Of course, that's not possible. Nonetheless, Paul showed a rare of death of love for his people. You see, here, Paul reflects the heart of Moses that Moses had for Israel. Remember back in the story of Exodus when Moses went up to, the Mount, to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments? While Moses was away, the Israelites made a golden calf and worshipped the golden calf, and they committed spiritual adultery against the Lord. And so the Lord was very angry with Israel, and so he wanted to destroy the whole nation. But this is what Moses said. This is what Moses did when, when God wanted to destroy his people. He said in Exodus 32, Moses interceded. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, this is what Moses said. Listen to this. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. That's a strong prayer. That's a serious prayer unto God. You see, both Moses and Paul were faithful servants of God, and they showed genuine concern for his people. Now, how about us? Are you burdened by the salvation? Or are you burdened for the salvation of your loved one? When was the last time that you prayed for your family and friends who don't know the Lord? When was the last time you cried out to God on behalf of others who are still lost? And what sacrifices are you willing to make to help those or to help your loved ones come to Jesus? For me, this passage also speaks to me and it reminds me of my heart. Where is my heart? Is just my heart for myself or is my heart also for God or for others and for the lost? May the Lord help us. Now think about it. The Jews were Paul's worst enemies. They persecuted him, harassed him, made his life and ministry difficult. And yet, Paul loved them greatly. And what made Paul do that? It is by the grace of God. And Paul by God's grace, ultimately reflected the heart of Jesus. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ became a curse for his enemies. He became a curse for us. We were God's enemies, and he became a curse for us, and so that we may be saved. Now, how about us? Do we also feel sorrow for our enemies? Think about the people in your life. Who are the people that make your life difficult or miserable? Maybe it's a family member or a co-worker. Perhaps it's a government, or maybe it's a fellow Christian or believer. How do you pray for them? When you pray to God, do you say, Lord, please don't curse my enemy. Let that curse fall upon me instead. That's a tough prayer, and that's the prayer of Paul and Moses. But then, may the Lord help us. May we have that heart that reflects the heart of Christ. Now, let's go back to our text. In chapters 1 to 8, Paul used the word Jews, but in chapters 9 to 11, Paul used the term Israel or Israelites. And what's the difference? Some theologians say that the Jews highlight the people's nationality or citizenship, their national identity. But the term Israel emphasizes their covenant relationship with God. And that is what Paul highlights here in verses 4 to 5. He says, 
the people of Israel, and these are the blessings that they receive. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God over all, forever praise. Amen. You see, Paul enumerated these eight covenant blessings that Israel received from God. And what's the greatest blessing that they receive? They received the honor of being the race in which, from which the Messiah came. Our Lord Jesus Christ became part of the Jewish race. So you see, Paul highlighted these blessings to show that Israel was indeed God's chosen nation and his covenant people. And that brings us to the first question. If God chose Israel as his covenant people, but Israel remained unsaved, did God's word fail? Paul's short answer is no. In verse 6, he says, It is not as though God's word had failed. Then Paul explains, For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. Not all descendants from Israel are Israel. And Paul claims this truth. Not all physical Israelites are true Israelites. You see, Paul says God's promise did not fail because God's promise only applied to those who are true Israelites. And who are the true Israelites? It's not the physical Israelites, but the true Israelites are the spiritual Israelites, not the biological ones. And so Paul used two stories to prove this point. The first is the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 6, he says, For not all who are descendant from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. You see, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's mother was Hagar and Isaac's mother was Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife and Hagar was the slave of Sarah. And you can read the details of these stories in Genesis 16 to 18. Both Ishmael and Isaac were Abraham's physical descendant, but only Isaac and his children were considered children of promise. Only Isaac was the one chosen by God. Now, many Jews may say Ishmael was disqualified in the first place because he was just a son of a slave. Ishmael and Isaac were only half-brothers, so that doesn't count. So Paul used another story to prove his point. Okay, so kung hindi pwede si Isaac and Ishmael, look at the story of Jacob and Esau, verse 10 to 12. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done something good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just at his it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Paul then takes the case of Esau and Jacob. Sabi niya, hindi pwede si Isaac and Ishmael. So tingnan natin si Esau and Jacob. Both of them have the same parents, Rebecca and Isaac. At the same time, they were twins and they were actually conceived at the same time. So technically, both of them should inherit the promise of God to Abraham. But what happened? Only one was chosen, the other was rejected. Jacob was accepted. Esau 
was rejected. So what's the point? Not all physical Israelites are true Israelites and only those who are the children of promise are the true people of God. And ang point ni Paul dito, sabi niya, being part of God's people is not based on human effort. It's all according to God's sovereign choice. God is the one who has the right to choose. That is the point that Paul is making here. And here's another point. Paul says, God's word did not fail. Why? Because God remained faithful to his promise to Abraham. He fulfilled his promise to Abraham when he chose Isaac and Jacob over Ishmael and Esau. And in the same way, God fulfilled his word when he selected some of the Jews and some of the Gentiles to be saved. Now, the story of Jacob and Ishmael demonstrates God's election and sovereignty. And this doctrine, in reality, is difficult to understand. Why? Because for one reason, when we choose something, what do we do? When we choose something, we use a system of merits. For example, when we buy a car, when we buy a phone, when we buy something that we want, we choose the best ones that we can afford, right? When we choose a marriage partner, we want to choose what is the best or who is the best for us. But the Bible says when God chose between Jacob and Esau, God chose one of them before they were born, even before Jacob and Esau could prove that they are better or if before they have done something good or bad, God already made a choice. Verse 11, it says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God already made a choice. And God said, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I hated. Now, the word hate here is a Hebrew idiom, which means God chose to put Jacob above Esau. Jacob was chosen as God's people, but Esau was not. Now, when God chose Jacob over Esau, is God being unfair? When, Jacob said, when God said to Jacob, Jacob, I have loved, Esau, I have hated, did God play favorites? Of course not. Let me explain. You see, both Jacob and Esau were undeserving. Both of them were undeserving of God's blessing and favor. Let's compare Jacob and Esau. Esau was an older twin. He had the rights of the firstborn son. But the Bible says Esau was godless because he sold his birthright for a single meal. That's Hebrews 12, 16. In other words, Esau rejected God and he embraced and chose the pleasures of this world. How about Jacob? Jacob was a deceiver. He tricked his brother into selling him his birthright. Jacob also deceived his father Isaac and he stole Esau's blessing. In other words, Jacob is a thief. Jacob is a deceiver. And so you see, there's no natural reason for God to choose between Jacob and Esau. Both of them were undeserving. Both of them were self-centered. Both of them are worldly. Neither of them deserves God's love, blessing, and favor. All they deserve is God's hate and judgment. But praise God, out of his mercy, goodness, and righteousness, God chose Jacob over Esau. Why? Verse 11, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. You see, Paul says that God's election is based not on human merit, but it is based on God's choice and sovereignty. The only reason Jacob and his descendants received the promise is because of God's goodness, God's gracious choice, and he chose according to his purpose. And that is the same thing for us. 
Now here, Paul echoed what God said to the Israelites through Moses. Again, the point is both Jacob and Esau were undeserving. And in the same way, God tells the, the whole nation of Israel through Moses that you are undeserving. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 9. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers, God is saying here, because I have loved you and because I am faithful, that's why I'm choosing you. It is not because you are deserving. It is not because you are. there is something beautiful about you. But God said, I have brought you out by my mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of the slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, because I have loved you. In chapter 9, Know then, it is not because your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. That is what God says, no? You, Israelites, are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you have provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrive in this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Did you hear that? God says, Israel, you are stubborn. You are rebellious. There is nothing beautiful that, that makes me attracted to you. All you gave me is just heartaches and you just sinned and rebelled against me. But then I chose to love you. I chose to be faithful to your forefathers. It is because of my goodness and mercy. Now here's the point. God chose Jacob, not because Jacob did something to deserve God's favor, but God chose Jacob for his own purpose out of his righteous mercy and grace. And friends, in the same way, God also chose to save us, not because we deserve it, but because he is merciful and gracious. Let me repeat that and let it sink in. God chose to save you. God chose to save me, not because of something that we have done, not because we deserve it, but because God is merciful and God is gracious. Remember, we have sinned and we have fallen short of God's glory. And the only thing that we deserve is God's wrath and judgment. But God graciously gave us our Lord Jesus Christ to die on our behalf. And so may we not forget that undeserved blessing. Now let's go to the next question. Is God unjust? Romans 9, 14 to 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Paul says not at all. When God chooses to save only some and not others, is he being unfair? When others are saved and others are not, is God playing favorites? Of course not, Paul says. Again, we find this concept difficult to accept. Because when we see others and when we see them experience God's blessing and favor, we say, it's unfair, God is unfair. And why is that? Because we feel entitled. We feel that we think and we deserve God's favor. We think that we deserve to receive from God and we are convinced that God owes us. We say, I deserve that. But is that the case? No, Paul is saying, Paul reminded us that God is not unfair and he defends God's justice by comparing Moses and Pharaoh. And their story is also a reflection of our lives. Romans 9:15 to 16 says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Again, the highlight here is God's mercy. That's the theme of this section. You see, Moses represents those whom God accepts and those whom God showed mercy to. 
when Israel sinned by worshiping the golden calf at Mount Sinai, the whole nation of Israel deserved to be destroyed. But Moses pleaded with God not to destroy the whole nation. And by God's mercy, the Lord answered Moses' prayer. And what happened? Instead of millions of people being annihilated, only 3,000 of them were killed. That's the mercy of God. That's the grace of God. And after that incident, Moses had another encounter with God. And this is what God told Moses. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is the point. The people of Israel deserves God's punishment. That's justice. When God punishes Israel because they sin, that's justice. But God extended his mercy towards them. And as verse 16 tells us, it says, it is not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Again, Paul is saying our salvation is not because we wanted it or we worked for it or we deserve it, but it is everything is out of God's mercy. Again, let us not forget God is not obligated to save us. God is not obligated to save all of humankind. Now, if you would want to insist for God to be fair, then be ready to receive his judgment and wrath. Why? Because that is God's justice. God, that would bring about fairness. We have sinned against God, and the wages of sin is death, and therefore, if we want God to be fair, then we should be ready to face God's judgment and wrath. Because that is the requirement of God's justice. We have sinned, and we deserve to die. But praise God, God is gracious and merciful, as he has shown in the story of Moses and the Israelites. Now, Paul uses Pharaoh as his next example. Pharaoh represents those whom God rejected and punished. Verse 17, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Like the Israelites, Pharaoh also sinned against God. Pharaoh refused to listen to God. But instead of showing mercy to Pharaoh, God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, some people may say, how could God harden Pharaoh's heart and punish him for that? That's unfair. But you see, the Bible says that before God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh himself did that already. Pharaoh continually hardened his own heart. And he did it at least three times in Exodus. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God is just giving him over to his own sin and stubbornness. God only gave Pharaoh what he wanted in the first place. God just honored the choice of Pharaoh. In other words, God punished Pharaoh because he deserved it. That is justice. That is fairness. Now, Tim Keller explains this concept of hardening of hearts. He says, when God hardens someone's heart, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. Friends, this should be a warning to us. God already extended his mercy and grace through the cross of Christ. And if we remain stubborn and continue in our sin, if we continue to harden our hearts in sin, God will honor that choice. So may the Lord help us. If we don't accept God's mercy, someday we will face God's justice and punishment so may the lord help us again this truth is what john stott 
uh, beautifully explained. Let me read you this quote. And explains the, this concept of God hardening someone's heart. If therefore God hardens someone, he is not being unjust, for that is what their sin deserves. If, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he is not being unjust, for he is dealing with them in mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and that some are lost, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing from God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, neither case is God unjust. If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. The point is, we are undeserving, but God is merciful to us and he chose to save us. And so going back to the question, is God unjust? The answer is no. Because God punishes the sinful and the wicked, that is justice. But God is also merciful and he extends his compassion and mercy to the undeserving. Next, Paul then goes to address the third question. Why does God still blame us? Why does God still blame us? And here's the answer. God can blame us because man is responsible for his choices and we are responsible for the exercise of our free will. Like Pharaoh, we are free to choose, but we are not free to choose the consequences. Again, let me repeat that. We are free to choose what we want and what we don't want, but we are not free to choose the choices of our consequences. Let's look at verse 19. Romans says, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? <clears throat> For he is able to resist his will. So this is the question that some of uh, Paul's hearers might give as an objection. Why is, does God still blame us? And why can't we resist his will since he is the one who hardened our hearts? That is the question. But again, Paul is saying we are free to choose and we are not free to choose the choices of our consequences as the example of Moses and Pharaoh. But then Paul also gave this rebuke. Paul says that God will harden whom God wants to harden and he will give mercy to those he will give mercy. And again, Paul um, takes on this question and he says you know this question in verse 19 why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will Paul says uh, this is a question of pride and arrogance and so Paul gives this rebuke in verse 19 to 20 but who are you being human talk back to God shall what is formed say to the one who formed it why did you make like this does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay as some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Again, Paul is saying that is the question of arrogance and pride. And so Paul here quotes from Isaiah 45 to prove his point and to rebut those who object him. And this is the context of Isaiah 45. Through the prophet Isaiah, God prophesied that he would use King Cyrus of Persia for his plan. He would use King Cyrus to save Israel. But here's the problem. Cyrus is a pagan king. Cyrus is a gentile king. He is unclean and he is ungodly. And so the people of God are asking, Lord, how can you use a pagan and gentile king for his purpose? But God confronts and reminded his people that he is the creator and he has the sovereign rights and he has the freedom to do as he pleases. Now, in the same way, Paul reminded us that God is a potter and we are just lumps of clay in God's hand. And God can use anyone he chooses to accomplish 
His purpose. Now, knowing that God has the only rights and we don't have any, we might have this wrong conclusion. And we might claim, you see, God is unfair. God is a tyrant. God is the one who abuses his power. But to avoid that misunderstanding, Paul wrote the following verses to reveal the very heart of God. Verse 22 to 23, Paul says, What if, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, because that is the right of God, what if, instead of doing that, God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy for whom he prepared in advance for glory? Here's the point. Paul is saying, God is sovereign and he is powerful. He is our creator God. But this same God is also a good and merciful God. Yes, God is the all-powerful creator and we are powerless before him. But God is also patient, loving, and gracious. Notice what Paul says in verse 22. In dealing with those who deserve God's wrath, God chose to show them patience and he bore with them with great patience. In other words, God shows mercy and delays his judgment on sinners. And this is the same thing that the Apostle Peter says. He says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient toward you, not willing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It says that God is not willing for anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. And that is why he extends his grace and mercy and patience. But then, the reality is we have a choice. Either we choose God and embrace him or, ide or either we reject God and rebel against him. So the choice is also up to us. Friends, this is the heart of God. He does not want anyone to perish. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But then the question is, will we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we believe in the salvation, in, the, in God's provision of salvation that he gave through Jesus Christ? God has been patient with me. God has been patient with you. Think about your life. Do you really think that where you are now, you, you deserve it? Well, for me, me and my wife, we were reflecting, we are so grateful that God has been gracious to us. The very fact that God saved us and the, the current ministry that we are in. God has showed us his mercy and grace. We have, we've done a lot of things. We have rebelled against God. We have sinned against him. But then we realize that God is gracious, that God is the God of second chances, that God is the God who extends his grace, his mercy, his patience to the undeserving. And I hope and pray that you would remember your life and reflect on that goodness of God to you. Now going back to verse 22 to 23, these verses tells us that there are two groups of people the objects of mercy, and the objects of God's wrath. Now the question is, which group do you belong to? Your choice will determine that. If you surrender your life to Christ, you will be part of the objects of God's mercy. But if you keep on rebelling against the Lord and stay hardened and stubborn in your heart, then you are part of that group of the objects of God's wrath. So may the Lord help us. Now, Paul gives us a glimpse of the heart of God again here in verse 24. God desires many to be saved, and this many includes both Jews and Gentiles. Paul says, What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, 
whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Then Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea. As he says in Hosea, I will call my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Paul quotes the prophecy of Hosea. In its context, Hosea said, God would renew his covenant and would renew his mercy to the 10 tribes of Israel who rebelled against him because they have worshipped other gods and rejected the Lord. But God says, I will no longer reject them. Instead, I will receive them back unto myself and they will become part of my people once more. And Paul saw the same principles being applied to the Gentiles as well. Paul says that God wants the Gentile to be part of his covenant people. And that has been God's plan all along. And that is the mercy of God. And it displays God's riches, glory, and his majesty. That is the goodness of God. And that is the mercy of God. Now, how about the Jews? Did God reject them? Of course not. Verse 27 to 29. Paul calls Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. You see, Paul says here that God has not rejected Israel despite her sin. Yes, in Isaiah, God judged Israel through the exile, but God did not completely destroy his people like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in, back in Genesis? God destroyed the whole nation because of their sin and its total annihilation. No one was left alive. But for Israel, God said he would preserve his people through a remnant. He would preserve his people through a remnant. And what is a remnant? A remnant is a small group of people out of a larger population. A remnant is a group of people who survive God's judgment and chastisement. Uh, about this concept of remnant, we will look more into this when we go to chapter 11. A remnant is a representation of God's mercy. A remnant is a representation of God's mercy. Instead of destroying Israel for her sins, instead of destroying her completely, God chose to save a remnant and to preserve Israel. For he is merciful and he is faithful. Now let's go back to the question, why does God still blame us? Answer, God can blame us because we are responsible for our choices and actions. Nonetheless, God shows us his great patience and mercy. God is sovereign and powerful, but God is also good and merciful. Now the last, the fourth question is, what's the explanation for Israel's unbelief? Verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, have attained it? That is the righteousness, that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him, Christ Jesus, will not be put to shame. Now, we don't have enough time to discuss this part in detail, but let me just give you these key points in this section. Paul says that Israel was responsible for her present condition. She exercised her free will to choose God or reject him. Sadly, Israel remained in unbelief because she pursued righteousness through the law and she did not pursue 
righteousness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. And that is the main point here. And we will learn more about this section when we go to chapter 10 next week. Now, before we end, let me highlight this tension between chapters 9 and 10. Let me show you this part. There are two sides of the same coin. God's sovereignty or divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Chapter 9 highlights divine sovereignty and chapter 10 focuses on human responsibility. God is sovereign and man is also responsible. And these are the two sides of the same coin. Both are true at the same time, but it's difficult to understand. Both are valid, but it's really a mystery. And for us, it's, we, we really cannot comprehend it. But if we want to be faithful to the word of God, we need to hold both intention and both in balance. We need to respect the reality of that God is sovereign and we need to respect that reality that man is also responsible. Divine sovereignty says God will choose whom he will save. But human responsibility says those who believe in Christ will be saved. So who makes the choice? Is it God or is it man? Actually, both. Both are working together. And again, that is a mystery. Divine sovereignty says God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But human responsibility says those who respond in faith will receive God's mercy. Again, both are true. And this is intention. Now think about your own salvation experience. When you decided to follow God, when you decided to give your life to Christ, did you make that decision on your own? For me, I could say yes. There's no one who forced me to follow Christ and I put my faith in Christ based on my own decision. Now, when you look back at how God saved you, could you say that it was God's hand who orchestrated everything so that you could hear the gospel? It was God's hand who allowed you to be born in a certain family here in this country, which is a Christian nation. God then placed you in the, in the certain place where, where you can attend church or where you have a friend who already heard about the gospel and shared it with you. Could you say it was God's hand who orchestrated everything for you to hear the gospel? For me, I could say yes. And indeed, it was God who fully uh, was in control back then so that I could be saved. And these true are the reality of our salvation. God is sovereign and we are also responsible. In, and it's a beautiful picture of God and man working together. And of course, it is God who is, um, who is the one working for our salvation and God calls us to respond. Now remember, God's sovereignty is something that is important, but we should not also uh, forget that we are responsible for our choices. So therefore, let us trust him and let us pursue righteousness by faith. Again, these concepts are difficult to understand, but what's important is for us that as we approach this topic, let us approach this and study this with patience, with humility, with submission to God and his word. And so may the Lord help us. Now, as we close, let me give you this summary and application. We have covered a lot, but let me summarize everything through these five points. First, God's word is reliable. God's word is reliable. He is faithful to his covenant promise. Therefore, let us trust him and his word. Second, God is sovereign and all-powerful. He can do whatever he pleases. Therefore, let us revere him, let us honor him, because God is worthy. And third, God is good and chooses to show mercy to the undeserving. God chooses to show mercy to the undeserving. Therefore, let us be grateful for his love 
grace, and mercy. The fourth, we are free to choose. That's our responsibility. Either we embrace God or reject Him, but we are responsible and accountable for every choice that we make. Remember, we are free to choose what we want or what we do, but we are not free to choose the consequences of our actions and choices. And fifth, we are sinners and undeserving of God's love, favor, and mercy. All we deserve is God's wrath and judgment. Therefore, let us repent of our sins and be humble before God. And finally, let us remember, God is the righteous and faithful God who fulfills his covenant promise. God is the sovereign and merciful God who chooses undeserving people for his purpose and ultimately for his glory. God is the righteous and faithful God who fulfills his covenant promise. And he is the sovereign and merciful God who chooses undeserving people for his purpose and ultimately for his glory. So let us trust God for he is faithful and let us be grateful for he is good, gracious, and merciful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful message that you've given us through the Apostle Paul. Thank you so much for reminding us that indeed you are sovereign, you are all-powerful, that you orchestrated everything. From eternity past, you have planned already the salvation of the whole world and you have already planned our salvation. Thank you so much that it was your great hand who orchestrated everything out of your sovereignty, your wisdom, your power, and you have drawn us near to you. And thank you, O God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, O Lord, for your faithfulness, especially because you reminded us that you have loved us, not because we deserve it, not because there's something beautiful in us that, you, that made you attracted to us, but Lord, in spite of our sinfulness, our rebellion, our stubbornness, despite our hearts being hard, Lord God, you chose to love us, to love us, your enemies. Thank you so much for giving us that grace, for giving us that blessing. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. And just help us to understand the depth of your love, the vastness of your graciousness, O Lord. And may you remind us, Lord God, that indeed we deserve nothing. All we deserve is your judgment and wrath and punishment. But you have given us so much in Christ. You, through Christ, you have given us redemption. Not only that, before we were enemies, but now you call us your friends. But not only that, you have adopted us into your kingdom. You have made us part of your family. But not only that, you also gave us the Holy Spirit as a seal of our future inheritance. You made us co-heirs with Christ and we will rule and reign with Christ at the proper time. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us. Lord, we pray for the people of Israel. Lord God, um, you have given them so much. But then in their hardness of hearts, they chose to reject you. They chose to pursue righteousness that comes from the law and not by faith we pray O lord that you open their hearts that you open their minds O god for the salvation of israel lord god will bring about the salvation of many more and and we pray O lord that you help them lord god to to really know you and, and to embrace christ their lord and savior 
We pray, O oh Lord God, that you work your way. Let your kingdom come, Lord God, not just to our nation and our country, but to the people of Israel. Let your purpose prevail and let your word, uh, Lord God, uh, be fulfilled according to your plans, your ways. Thank you so much. Thank you, Father, for today. We pray for our church. Continue to watch over us. Help us, Lord God, to be faithful as we do our ministry. As you call us, Lord God, to be salt and light to the people around us. May we continue to preach the gospel so that those whom you have called, Lord God, will respond. And we pray, Lord God, that you help us to be diligent. Yes, you are sovereign. You are the ones who who would um, save people. But you have called us also to have that responsibility to share the gospel, to preach so that people may hear, so that people may, may know the gospel, so that people may understand and respond. And Lord, please help us to be faithful to this calling that you've given us. We pray for each and every one of us. We pray for those who are sick among us. We pray that you grant us your healing mercy. Grant us your wholeness. Help us, Lord God, to experience your love, your favor. Restore us, O God, and may you use our story as a testimony of your goodness and graciousness, your power, O Lord. Provide for our needs, for our family, for our businesses, for our work. Be the one to give us our daily bread. And would you please bless us, Lord God, more than we need so that we can be a channel of your blessing to others, especially those who are lacking. We pray, O Lord, that you help us to have wisdom as we make decisions every day, as we face the challenges that we have, the challenges of um, our concern over sickness, the COVID, over the rising inflation, the threats of war, the threats of food shortages, and the other challenges that we are facing. Despite, Lord God, that we are facing, may you be the one to give us peace. Help us to follow you, to walk by faith and not by sight. And help us to be an encouragement to others as well. We pray as a, one church and one country. We pray, O oh Lord, that you help our country, Lord God, um, be faithful to you. Revive our hearts, Lord God. Revive us spiritually, economically. Help us, Lord God, to heal our nation and be the one to work your purpose in us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and mercy. May you find us faithful. Now, as you bow your heads, let me give you this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his mercy and peace. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen and amen. Thank you very much for joining us. May God bless us all. See you again next time.